0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sangmin from
1: The Post. Um, Hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Tuesday, August 18th. Today, a little-known story about how the 19th Amendment was ratified. And how Black women had to keep fighting for the right to vote. A century ago today, the 19th Amendment was ratified. It read, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That was a huge victory for the women's suffrage movement. But the victory was really for white women. Black women had to continue fighting for universal suffrage, and that fight is still going on. Today, we have two stories about the 19th Amendment. The first is about the day it was ratified in the Tennessee State House, and the second is about its limitations.
0: Who are you and what do you do? My name is Katie Mettler and
2: I'm a reporter at The Post.
0: And what is this story about?
2: This story is about the relationship between a mother and her son and a history making vote.
1: When we talk about the 19th Amendment, many of us have heard of suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who fought decades to grant women the right to vote. But most of us haven't heard of Harry T. Byrne or his mother, Feb Byrne, even though they also played a pivotal role in establishing the 19th Amendment. Katie Mettler spoke to Post Report senior producer Maggie Penman about what happened 100 years ago when the 19th Amendment was ratified in the Tennessee State House.
2: Women had been fighting for the right to vote in the United States for decades. The previous summer, Congress had passed the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. But in order for the 19th Amendment to become law, three-fourths of U.S. states needed to ratify the 19th Amendment, which means that the, the state lawmakers had to decide that they wanted this change to the U.S. Constitution to become law, and by... August of 1920, when the vote came to the Tennessee legislature, 35 U.S. states had voted to ratify. Others had decided they weren't going to take up the vote or they had declined to ratify the 19th Amendment. And so Tennessee was a really, really important state in the conversation because it had the opportunity, as historians say, to become the perfect 36th, the 36th state to ratify the amendment that would then make it law across the country. So who was Harry T. Byrne. Harry T. Byrne was a state lawmaker in Tennessee, the youngest lawmaker in the House of Representatives. And he represented McMinn County, which is in East Tennessee. And he was from a, a tiny town called Niota.
0: How old would he have been when he was called upon to cast a vote on women's suffrage? He was 24 years old. Crazy. Yeah.
1: When Kitty first learned about the story of Harry T. Byrne and his mother, Feb, she kind of got obsessed with it.
2: And I was especially interested in the descendants of Harry and Feb Byrne, who they were, if they knew about their connection to this moment in history, and what they were thinking as the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment was coming up. And I started looking into it and did a little Googling and immediately found Tyler Boyd.
3: Okay, I'm ready. My name is uh, Tyler L. Boyd.
2: Who is the great-great-grandson of Feb.
3: I'm a teacher at Lenore City High School, and I was born and raised in McMinn County, Tennessee.
2: Uh, And he had recently written a book about his family's history.
3: When Harry T. Byrne left Niota to attend the special session in early August 1920, he had planned on voting for suffrage. He actually believed in votes for women. But when he got there, things began to change.
2: It was an intense battle in Tennessee. Harry T. Byrne talks about how he showed up in the Capitol and immediately 100 to 150 lobbyists descended from both the suffrage side and the anti-suffrage side. And the way that these lobbyists were able to identify who was on their team and who was not was that they asked these lawmakers and they themselves wore roses.
3: A lot of writers and historians called it the War of the Roses.
2: Those who were opposed to suffrage wore red roses, and those who were in favor of suffrage wore yellow roses.
3: It was a way to signify your position on the issue without even having to say anything.
2: So Harry T. Byrne,
0: the youngest member of the Tennessee state legislature, he's going into this super high-pressure vote to decide if women will have the right to vote nationally. I mean, it feels like that there must have been like an extraordinary amount of pressure on him.
2: For him, he was a young lawmaker, and his mentors from his county were very opposed to suffrage. He was getting intense pressure from the people he represented.
3: He got all sorts of telegrams from his constituents, his prominent influential constituents from both parties telling him, you need to vote no, people don't want this, we've had meetings and they're all right up against it.
2: And so he was really struggling with his vote, even though he personally believed in suffrage. He personally felt that it was right for women to have the ability to vote. He also had a duty to represent his constituents. And his loudest constituents, at least, were telling him that they did not want this.
0: So then, how did he come to decide? This is my
3: favorite part of the story. His mother, Fab and Byrne, back in Iota... Had written him a letter.
2: Uh, And it's a pretty average letter. The majority of the letter is talking about attending a wedding and about happenings on the family farm. But in there, she slips three different references to the vote. Very casually, I would say with the uh, subtle conviction of a woman who knew she raised her son right, but she didn't want to beat him over the head with it. And she sends that letter off and it actually arrived in the mail at the Tennessee State House the morning of the vote. So going
0: into the state house that day, he had read the letter. What color rose was he wearing?
2: Well, that's where things get kind of spicy because he was wearing a red rose. The pressure from his constituents and from his mentors had pressured him to decide to vote against suffrage.
3: And they're thinking, well, we've lost Byrne. We're gonna lose today. You know, he's he's gone to the dark side. Well, little do they know he has the letter from his mother in his jacket pocket.
2: And I think that really symbolizes the tension in his decision what he was going to do. That morning they actually voted twice to table the amendment. And Harry voted in favor of tabling the amendment. He was actually pretty okay with maybe deciding this later down the road. He was just trying to get out of this. He, he was, was like, just, he really I don't want was. my mom to be mad at me. He, but. Was. he was like, you know, what if we decide this like in six months? Let's just table this for yeah. now. Because he was up for re-election that fall, and he was really concerned that his vote on this matter could be political suicide
3: like all great politicians, put off to after election day, not have any controversy on our record.
2: And he votes twice to table the amendment, but it ties both times, uh, 48 to 48. And so eventually the lawmakers knew they had to vote on the merits of the amendment itself, thinking it would tie. And if it tied, it would die and they would all get to move on with their lives. And so they call the roll and the first couple lawmakers vote in favor. The next couple lawmakers vote Opposed, and then it's Harry's turn. And he votes I in favor of suffrage. And at first, everyone was like, Did this kid, did this new guy get confused? Does he know that he just voted in favor of suffrage?
3: His assigning vote was such a big shock to everyone.
2: They read the rest of the roll. None of the other lawmakers changed their mind, which meant that the vote was now 49 to 47 in favor of suffrage. So what happened to Harry T. Byrne? Did this cost him the election?
3: Oh, this, this will be a good one here.
2: <laughs> well, that's the beautiful thing about this story, and I think maybe a lesson for all politicians, is that uh, it did not cost him the election.
3: Now, his district was just a little bit against Vulture Women, not by much.
2: 900 women in McMinn County, his home county, ended up registering to vote. And when the election came about, he won because of those women who voted for him. And I think my favorite part about the story is that one of those women was his mother.
0: So we should say that this was not the end of the fight for women's suffrage because... The 19th Amendment didn't allow all women to vote. Many people didn't get the right to vote for many years after this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's what's really important to remember about this moment is that it is an important date to celebrate the writing into the Constitution of empowering women to vote. But... There was decades of work. And still today, there's work to be done to make sure everyone is truly enfranchised in the country. And the 19th Amendment
1: was really just the beginning of that work. Katie Mettler is a reporter for The Post. Tyler Boyd's book is Tennessee Stateman Harry T. Byrne, Women's Suffrage, Free Elections, and a Life of Service.
4: The 19th Amendment doesn't guarantee any woman the right to vote, it's important to say. The 19th Amendment prohibits states from using sex as a criteria for voting, but there are many American women who still cannot vote after 1920. Martha Jones is a historian. I teach history at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All.
1: In her book, Vanguard, Martha lays out the ways that black women were stopped from voting even after the 19th Amendment.
4: The most important piece are what we call Jim Crow laws that keep black American men and now after 1920, keep black American women from the polls. And by 1920, states use tactics like poll taxes. You have to pay a dollar or two a year before Election Day if you're going to vote. They use literacy tests. You have to read a complex portion of the U.S. Constitution aloud if you're going to register to vote. They use understanding clauses. You have to interpret a complex provision of the Constitution. Um, States use grandfather clauses. If your grandfather didn't vote before 1868, for example, you can't vote. These are laws that disproportionately keep formerly enslaved people, and poor African Americans away from the polls, even after constitutional amendments, would seem to guarantee them the right to vote.
1: I'm really curious about places where Black women were engaged and excited about voting, but were blocked. What happened to them when they showed up at polling locations?
4: So, black women do show up and they're testing the 19th Amendment to see whether, in fact, it does give them the right to vote. They will meet up with reluctant. Registrars who will use both law and subterfuge to keep them from the polls, they will meet up with egregiously long lines that will discourage them from registering, that will require them to take days off of work, for example, to vote. They will find themselves harassed. They will find themselves intimidated. I write about the women in Daytona, Florida, for example, who the night before Election Day in 1920, those women are visited by the Ku Klux Klan, um, night riders in full regalia, burning cross on horses, who confront African-American women in an effort to intimidate them from the
1: polls. And you've already alluded to this, but... Long before 1920, women were organizing to vote, and and we hear so much about how white women were at the helm of the suffrage movement. And I'm wondering how black women were treated by white suffragettes.
4: Suffrage associations are never comfortable or welcoming places for most African American women in the United States. The movement has a long history, really from its inception, a relationship to white supremacy and to racism that makes suffrage associations, at best, awkward places for African American women to be. What does that mean? Well, it means, for example, that within suffrage circles, there are women who advocate that white women, or oftentimes those who are termed educated women, which is a code for white, educated women should first have the vote, the implication being before formerly enslaved women, African-American women. So there are ideas about hierarchy when it comes to voting rights that are one facet of the suffrage movement. By the time we get to the end of the 19th century, the suffrage movement takes a decided turn now because there is an interest in winning the allegiance and the support of white Southerners for the movement. And that means that the movement becomes structurally and ideologically complicit with white supremacy because in order to win the support of white Southerners, African American women, though they have long been great proponents of women's voting rights, now are going to be set to the margins and in some instances excluded so as to create a more comfortable place for white Southerners who will not participate in a political organization where black women are very present, or certainly they will not participate in an organization where black women
1: are leaders. (sighs) What are some of the moments in history where we see some of those divisions happening?
4: In the 1860s, it's now after the Civil War in the United States. It's after the abolition of slavery. And the entire nation is consumed with the question about citizenship, about belonging, now former slaves. Four million of them are being incorporated into the body politic. And debates emerge about many things, including voting rights. And an old coalition of allies, abolitionists, and women's rights advocates come together in an organization called the American Equal Rights Association to debate the future and to really figure out where they all stand on the question of the vote going forward. And there are factions that emerge, those like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who advocate for educated suffrage which is a gentle code for um, white women's suffrage. There is Frederick Douglass, who takes the position that for black men, the vote is a matter of life and death, and that black men should go first if someone has to go first when it comes to voting rights. There are also African-American women at these meetings, including Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a poet, anti-slavery activist, who comes in to say not so fast, right? Black women can't be split between our race and our gender. And she really advocates for a broadly humanistic view. She speaks about humanity in the interests of all humanity and urges the coalition to stick together. But... They will not. And she will not be able to convince, for example, Elizabeth Cady Stanton that black and white women stand in the same shoes in the 1860s when it comes to the prospect of voting rights. And this will lead to a dissolution of this coalition and the emergence of rival suffrage associations that very much differ on the question of the supremacy of white women's votes versus African-American votes. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson comes to Washington, a newly elected president. And Wilson will, as we know, be responsible for The segregation of Washington and purging of black office holders in the federal government. Um, But he's not alone. And in Congress, James Vardaman comes to the Senate from the state of Mississippi on a promise that he will repeal the 15th Amendment, which had been enacted in 1870 to protect black men's votes. But Vardaman is a political horse trader. Over the course of the next year, as he's trying to win repeal of the 15th Amendment, he is prepared to do business with women's suffragists. And specifically, Vardaman proposes a bargain. I'll support a women's suffrage amendment to the Constitution if the supporters of that amendment will support me in an effort to repeal the 15th Amendment. So here, I think we can hear the the vice, right, that black women are in, the prospect of what in essence would be a white women's suffrage amendment, and at the same time pulling out the rug from underneath the prospect of black voters, men and women in the future. This is an example of the ways in which African-American women stand alone and separate from white American women in a place like the U.S. Senate. There is not an outcry or a decrying of the prospect of a repeal of the 15th Amendment from white suffragists. Vardaman fails, but he exposes the degree to which there is a bargain being developed, and it is one that will sacrifice African-American votes in the interest of winning security for white women's votes going forward. By the time we get to 1920 um, and the eve of the 19th Amendment, it is no secret that the terms of the 19th Amendment will not interfere with the right and the capacity of individual states to use Jim Crow's to continue to keep Black Americans, including now Black women, from the polls. This means Um, Not that there's a dirty secret or a skeleton in the closet of the history of suffrage. This means that if we read the minutes from Congress or from the state legislatures as they debate ratification, as we read the correspondence of suffragists and their supporters, we see the open confession that the expectation is that the 19th Amendment will continue to allow states to keep Black women from the polls despite the 19th Amendment.
1: In your writing, you say the history of the 19th Amendment is more than myth. It's a cautionary tale for our own time. And I'm wondering what you meant. I think the
4: parallels between 1920 and 2020 are more striking than, frankly, I ever could have imagined when I began writing Vanguard in 1920. Despite the 19th Amendment, individual states use laws that are neutral on their face. These are not laws that say black women can't vote. And nonetheless, in practice, in their implementation, they keep black but not white women from the polls. Today in 2020, I think this helps us understand what is underneath voter suppression practices like ID requirements or the shuttering of polling places, or the purging of voter rolls. These are neutral on their face, but implemented in ways, as we well know in 2020, that disproportionately mean people of color in the United States, especially Black and Latinx voters, are going to be kept from the polls. So these are parallels, to eras of voter suppression And the lesson out of 1920, of course, is the lesson that is left to us by the black women who then organize after 1920, all the way until 1965, when the United States Congress passes a Voting Rights Act. I call African American women the vanguard because more than 200 years ago, as black women began to develop their own ideas about American politics, they were very quick and very deliberate in decrying both racism and sexism. They envisioned an American politics without race and without gender. For a very long time, they are alone in championing this vision for American politics, one that I think sounds very 21st century. Um, But it turns out that those of us who today think the bar is such that race and gender shouldn't matter in politics. Um, We are the inheritors um, from this vanguard of Black women who really for two centuries um, promote this view, insist on this view, set the bar high, and wait for the rest of the country to catch up.
1: Martha Jones is a historian and professor at Johns Hopkins University. She's also the author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. Vanguard comes out next month. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Nicole Ellis. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.